I'm hoping that today you will take notes and put this in your Bible and from time to time review it for your benefit. I hope, by the grace of God, that what we look at today in what transpires in Paul's life will be a means by which we can become more effective in carrying the message of the gospel to the world. You'll recall the background here in Acts chapter 22 involved Paul's being essentially taken by a mob that believed he had violated the temple dragged outside the temple, and he is being beaten now with the intent that through this process of beating him, he's going to die. As word comes to the Roman soldiers that there is a ruckus going on right outside the temple, their barracks, essentially, at the, the uh, Tower of Antonia, was, was centered right next to the temple area. So they were within very, very close proximity to what was going on. Probably a couple hundred of them responded. They were involved. You you and I see stuff like this in the news. When there is a riot that's going on somewhere, the police respond and they they try to get to the heart of what's going on. Well, that's exactly what was happening 2,000 years ago in, in this setting. And here come these Romans. And the crowd knows that the Romans mean business. And when they move into an area, there better be a real close attention to what they're trying to to communicate. And so the Romans move in and they essentially take Paul, they rescue him. Now he is beaten up, but he is able to move and he's able to walk back to this area where he is going to be incarcerated. But on the way, he makes a request of the leader of that military group. And he said, will you please let me address the crowd that has just tried to beat me? And when we come to Acts chapter 22, we have the address that he gives. Now, last week we read through this prior to the message. And I'm going to ask right now, if if you were not with us last week and haven't read this, if you'll stay with me for the next few well, I hope you stay with me for the next hour and a half. And I no, hope that... that you'll understand we're, we're going to talk about some things and then I'd like to read the passage again, but later within the context of what I believe will be most helpful for us in our process of sharing our faith. So as we're looking at this chapter, what we're doing now is we're looking how you can be prepared to share your faith by having certain things. And the first thing that we looked at last week was a heart that was filled with love. When we talk about a heart being filled with love, Genuine love comes initially from God Himself. He is the author of love. He is the one who defines love. And the way God defines love is very different than the way we define love. We generally define love within the realm of an emotional feeling, uh, an attraction for someone. Oh, I just love that person. And then there are some people that you frankly, you really don't love, and you look at them and you say, I'd rather just spend my life not being with that person anymore. That isn't the the type of love that God has. 
When we speak of God's love, we are speaking about an action that God puts into effect. I had shared earlier with our Sunday school class about a comment that I heard about a week ago from one of the the preachers on the radio. And uh, he was uh, using this illustration. He said, you know, if we were to try to define God's love today, here is the way we would write John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent a bouquet of flowers. That's kind of the way we look at love, isn't it? It's, I just, I just have this feeling for you, and, and I want you to have the same feeling for me, and that is not God's type of love. God's love is based upon the very being of his nature that desires the best for his creation without violating any of his characteristics, any of his nature, any of who he is. And so a holy God looks upon a lost mankind with genuine love that acts and it responds. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our sense of love is very different from God's. And in order for us to genuinely pursue those who don't know Christ as their Savior and try to help them come to a place where they are born again into God's family, we have to embrace the kind of love that God has. And basically, that is available for us. The Lord says that we love Him because He first loved us. He places that love within us because we understand what He did for us at Calvary in the person of His Son. There, the perfect Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, became a man, took on Himself the form of sinful flesh, though there was no sin in Him, and then He went to the cross and took our sin upon Himself, thus, death became part of His experience. There was nothing within Him deserving of death. But when our sin was placed upon Him, then He became, if I can put it in these terms, deserving of death. Because now He had a relationship to sin. But it was ours. It wasn't His. And when He died on the cross, He took the punishment that our sin deserves. He took the penalty that we should have to pay. And He paid it Himself. So that we could be granted His righteousness. Our sin given to Him. His righteousness given to us when by faith we trust in Him as our personal Savior. And so we have this redeeming act of Christ taking place at the cross of Calvary. And it's an act that rescues you and me from eternity in hell. How can you not love a Savior that would do something like that for us? And that love requires action. It requires we do something. If you're not willing to do something, don't say you love God. Because it's a lie. Love is an active verb. And it moves. And it has, it has energy. And it has a product. It results in good things. And so, we love, 
We have a heart that's filled with love because of what Jesus Christ did for us at Calvary. What he did for us in the promises that he gave. When he spoke to his disciples and said to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he talks about in his father's house, there are many As one translation says, mansions. Others would say there are many places. There is a home that he is preparing for us. And he says, I am going to get that place ready. And if I go, I'm going to come again. And I'm going to receive you unto myself that where I am there, you may be also. That is an absolutely certain promise. He said, I though in my physical being will not be visible to you any longer. I make you this promise. I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. You know who's here with us right now? The Savior. And you know what's wonderful about this? When we all go our separate ways, to put this on human terms, you can look to your right and there he is. Or you can look within, which is even better, and say there he is. Christ in you. The hope of glory. And so we love him because of what he did for us. And, and we love him because of what he's going to do. We know that he chooses to use his people. And we're going to talk more about that. But you might say something like this. Well, you know what? I, I really understand what you're saying. And I know that that should be the experience of my heart and my life. But I don't really have that sense of love for lost people the way I should. Then there is a solution. You walk by means of the Spirit... And not only will you not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, but as the Spirit has control, He will produce as part of His fruit, love. And then there are eight other qualities of fruit that He produces as well. But the very, very first one is, He will produce love. When we are walking in tune with the Spirit of God, it is His producing within us, not our working it up, I want to tell you, you and I are bound for frustration if we try to say, oh, I I just want to love more. I want to love. And you try to work this up in your flesh and you've got nothing better than what the flesh can produce. But when you allow the Spirit of God to have control of your life, you reckon yourself dead to sin. You count yourself to be alive unto God. You refuse to quench the Spirit. When He is speaking, you listen. When, when He is impressing upon your heart from the Word of God certain truths, you say, in spite of how I feel, that's what I'm going to do. And you refuse to grieve Him. Because every time you and I sin, we grieve Him. And guess what? We feel it. We feel that grief. And we, we refer to it as, I'm being convicted by the Spirit of God. You're not being convicted. Unsaved people are convicted. Unsaved people are convicted of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. What you are experiencing is the grief you have caused the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within you. Grieve not the Spirit of God. Why? He, when He is grieved, causes the reality of what we have done to be felt within us 
as a reaction to the grief we have caused Him. And now we say, oh Lord, how could I do that? You're experiencing the grief of God. And here's the wonderful response. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have the Holy Spirit to produce that love. And then I would add, having a genuine love for the lost. Looking to others and understanding that when they face eternity, if they do not have Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are going to go into eternity completely separated from God, experiencing the punishments not only of hell, but you understand that in God's plan that is being worked out, hell ultimately is cast into the lake of fire. And the torment of those who are in that place that was prepared for the devil and his angels is experienced for all eternity. And you look at that and you say, how can I not love these people? How can I not be caring about where they're going to spend eternity? I want you to, to look with me to something that the Apostle Paul said, and I, I, I've typed this out, and you, you, you can uh, refer to this if you want, or you just write down the, the reference. But look at the love that Paul had, this one who is now standing up speaking to these people. You remember what they just did? They just tried to kill him. They just tried to end his life. And he is standing there telling them how they can find forgiveness and how they can find eternal life through Jesus Christ. And he says this when he writes later to the Romans, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continuing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Paul looks at those people that have just tried to kill them and he does not see an angry mob that he hates. He sees eternal souls for which Christ died. You and I need to adjust our view. When you look at people, how do you see them? How, how do you see people? Oh, man, I went to the grocery store today. It was so crowded. They, you could hardly get through. And then this stupid lady with this crying baby threatening the child over and over. You do that again and I'm taking you outside. And the kid kept doing it and she never took him outside. And we go on. Have you ever experienced that? You ever be on a plane with the little one crying nearby? Yeah, I know it's miserable, isn't it? I'm not trying to tell you that it doesn't get under your skin. But I hope that you're able to look past that and understand that every person out there apart from Christ is going to hell. Paul understood that. He said, I wish I could go to hell instead of my countrymen. That's a deep love. You want to have... 
the capability to tell others about Christ, when you begin loving people, you'll do it. You'll see them for who they are. And you'll understand where they're going. There's a second element that's introduced by Paul, and, and it comes up in, in verses that, that follow later on. But I want you to understand, he had a sense of purpose. And this sense of purpose that he had drew into effect certain things that he knew. Here is something you and I need to know. We need to know that God has chosen a people for Himself. God has chosen a people for Himself. Listen to what Paul wrote when he wrote to the Ephesians in the fourth, or pardon me, the first chapter, beginning at verse three. Listen carefully. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. God has chosen a people for Himself. What does that mean to me? Some people really mess this up and they say, well then God's going to save whoever He wants to, whenever He wants to, and I'm not necessary. They said that to William Carey, who became one of the great missionaries of all times. The, the, the board that he was working with at the time said, you sit down, young man. God will save people. I, I don't know the exact words, but this was the idea. You sit down and shut up. God will take care of the lost in his own time. That is not what that means to us. What that means to us is this. There are people out there whom God has chosen as his people, and he's giving us the privilege to go out and find them. Did somebody go out and find you? Did somebody go out and find you? Did they convince you? Or did God? If we understand that God has chosen a people for Himself, the balance can go way, way, way this way. So let's look at the rest of what God has to say so that we are living in the appropriate balance. He says, I have chosen human instruments to go find those people. Now we're beginning to recognize it's not all over here, but now, now God's chosen humans to go tell others. How do we know? Well, listen again to what the scripture says. Write this passage down and you can turn to this later on. In Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? That does not mean a formal paid guy that sits in his office preparing sermons to come out on Sunday morning. A preacher is one who is making proclamation. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Who's been sent? 
every follower of Christ. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Now what God is telling us is simply this. God has chosen to reach those people whom He has called for Himself, whom He has chosen for Himself, by human instrumentality. And so we could look at that and we could say, oh man, that's great. God has chosen people. Pastor, you're, you're one of those people. We, we want you to, to give the gospel and you give it every week. You're right, I should. I should always give the gospel so that there's a message of hope for the lost no matter when they come. But if you have it stopped there, you've missed the whole point. It's not only that God has chosen to use human instruments, but God has chosen to use me. And me is in quotations. That's not pastor. That's me. I want you to say something with me. I want you to say, God has chosen me to reach the lost. God has chosen me to reach the lost. Let's do it again. God has chosen... How do we know? Because He identifies most of us in the passage that Pastor Steve read a little while ago. And I am really glad He did. Let's go back and read it again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Lord is telling us very clearly, beginning at verse 26, why I'm included in this. For you see your calling, brethren, not pastors, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, that not many wise according to the flesh, Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. You know what the Lord has just said? If you would dare to use the argument, I don't have what it takes to lead somebody to Christ. You're lying to yourself because God has chosen people who don't have what it takes to lead others to Christ. We're not that smart. We're not that wise. We're not that powerful. We're not that influential. We're not that articulate. We're not what the world would say you have to be to convince someone to put their faith and trust in Christ. And why then would God choose people like us instead of the wise, the powerful, the intelligent, the influential, the articulate? He chooses us so that no flesh will glory in His sight. And when people come to know Christ as Savior... If you or I have the privilege of sharing with them the information that they need to be saved, 
we will never be able to say, I won them to Christ. Boy, that just turns my stomach. Oh, I won so many people to Christ. Well, you proud... I don't win anybody to Christ. I have the privilege of sharing what Christ did for me. And I'm not so wise, and I'm not so smart. And I just can't convince people to see things the way they really are. But I have a God who can. Therefore, no flesh will glory in His sight. Well, you need a heart that's filled with love. You need an understanding of God's purpose. And then I think there's another thing. You need a calm spirit. When we look at what's happening with the Apostle Paul, I want you to see, and and you'd have to actually do like an overview of what's going on here in this uh, third chapter, or pardon me, the, the 22nd chapter, this third point that we're trying to make, that this calm spirit doesn't result from the circumstances in which you find yourself. Let's rehearse it again. Where is Paul? He is standing in the middle of probably 200 Roman soldiers. He is surrounded by a hateful mob that has tried to end his life. The message that he is to proclaim is a message that these people, up until this point, have firmly rejected. And yet, in the middle of this, he says to the, to the, uh, the, the captain of these soldiers... Will you allow me the privilege to talk to this crowd? And he stands up with calmness. Now, you know what? For me on Sundays, it's, it's really easy to speak to you all because you're friendly. You're nice people. So far, none of you have threatened me. Not sure that that's always the way it's going to be. But to this point, I mean, this is... A pretty easy crowd to speak to. Um, what if you all hated me? What if you had been yelling at me and possibly even putting your hands on me and maybe even beating me? And I'd stand up and I want to tell you something. I'd be shaken in my boots just because of the opposition of the people to whom you're speaking. But that isn't the issue. The issue is what's going on in here. And that's why Paul could speak with absolute calmness of spirit. Where did it come from? Well, there are at least four different things that come into play. His life was controlled by the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't an issue of being motivated or demotivated by the people to whom he was speaking, it was an issue of allowing himself to be under the control of the Spirit of God. And I want to tell you, the Spirit of God does not cause us to be anxious. He doesn't cause us to be fearful. Do you remember what the Lord says? He has not given us the spirit of fear, 
but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so when the Spirit of God is in control, you're calm. If you come to the place where you say, I just can't tell anybody about it. I can't tell them about Christ. Write it down. I am not under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now that may get you mad at me. But isn't that the truth? That is absolutely the truth. It is the Spirit of God that brings the control that we need to speak the truth in spite of the circumstances that are around us. But then there's a second element, and this one you can do something about. That is a life filled with experience. Paul had been at this place before. (laughs) Had he been beaten up before? Absolutely. He had been beaten with whips. He had been stoned, not in modern terminology. Okay? That means they picked up rocks and threw them at him. Alright? So he had been threatened with death on a whole variety of different levels. So he had been there before. Do you know how to calm your spirit in cooperation with the Spirit of God? To tell others, do it. And the first time you begin to tell somebody about Christ, you're probably going to be very nervous. And it's it's going to be, oh, I hope I say everything right. And you put a whole lot of pressure on yourself, which you shouldn't do. Because you somehow think you're the one that's going to be doing this. And we've already determined that that's not the case. But you know what takes away the fear? experience the first five six people you try to tell about Christ it might be a little bit scary for you but after a while you find out something I'm still alive they didn't kill me they didn't even hit me maybe they will that can happen on occasion they, they didn't do anything to me that has disrupted my life from living the way I believe God wants me to live. You know what? I've made this. And the more you do it, the calmer you will be because you will have a confidence that you can tell others about the Savior. Listen, I understand the, the, the fear that naturally goes along with sharing Christ. I know that. And and some of you might say, well, Pastor, it's easy for you because you tell people about Christ all the time and, and you're sharing the gospel all the time. Yeah, but you know what? It had to start somewhere. It started somewhere. And once you begin, you become more and more confident and you realize that you have got a message of life and of forgiveness and of eternal hope. What's better than that? Any of you who are salespeople, anything you have to sell is going to rot. Right? It's all going to burn up. But you can go in with confidence. I used to sell automatic baby swings. You wind them up, put the babies in. Swing-o-matic used to be a sales rep for Swing-o-matic. And uh, then they put the batteries in them. By the way, do you all know that the guy that invented the automatic baby swing was Nate Saint's brother, Dave Saint? The missionary that was one of the missionaries that was killed in South America. Anyway, just thought I'd tell you that. 
And, and I found out that if you put your knee into the front of the little basket where the babies sit and then crank it, it doesn't make so much noise. Some of you who had the old ones, you remember how loud those things were and the baby would be asleep and then all of a sudden, and the baby would wake up. So you stick your knee in and you just push it back a little bit and then it, it winds real quick. I have no idea why I told you that other than to say this. Every one of those lousy swings is going to burn. But I sold them with gusto. You have a message of hope. You have a message of life. You have a message of forgiveness. Share it. Another principle that emerges under this calmness of spirit is a life that's filled with assurance. How do you feel when you're doing what the Lord wants you to do? Isn't there a sense of peace? Isn't there a sense of satisfaction? I know I'm doing what God has called me to do. That's why I don't miss at all being a sales rep for Swingomatic. Because he redirected my path out of that realm into the realm of serving him this way. And I don't look back, I honestly don't look back for one minute and regret that I ever left Swingomatic. You probably know it today as Graco. Not the same people own it anymore. I want you to know that used to be a really fine Christian company. Then they got bought out by Rubbermaid and then somebody bought Rubbermaid out. And now I, I have no idea what direction they're going. But when I was working for them, they were really solid believers. Good, good followers of Christ. And it was a great place to work. But I don't look back at all with any regret because the Lord said, no, this isn't what I want you to do. This is the direction I want you to go. And I can tell you this, I am 100% sure I am right where I'm supposed to be today. And I love it. There is a deep sense of satisfaction. And when the opportunity comes to do something like sharing Christ, you can have the assurance, this is where God wants you to be. Doesn't that give you a sense of satisfaction? I'm right where He wants me to be. That's why His Spirit could be calm. And then the last one. And this one may be the most important. There was a knowledge of who does the saving. There was a knowledge of who does the saving. Do you know how many people Paul saved? None. Do you know how many people God used Paul to save? Probably thousands. But who did the saving? God did. And when you and I begin to understand that it is not we who talk people into believing in Christ, I can tell sad emotional stories and get people crying and get people to make an emotional response where maybe they'd even walk the aisle and come down and maybe kneel here. That may or may not be someone that God has reached into their heart and converted them. Only God knows. But I can tell you this, if they were genuinely converted, I didn't do it. But I could get a person to come down here and look like they're going through all the right motions and pray the sinner's prayer and do all these things that we have added to the gospel 
that God never added to the gospel. And we could say it is no longer the power of the gospel that brings people to salvation, but it's my capability to convince and to, to help people understand the truth. No, people get saved because God opens their hearts. And it isn't you and I. You know what we get to do? We get to do the best job possible in sharing Christ with them. And then when God sovereignly chooses, He opens their eyes to the truth and they say, yes, that's what I believe. And they might do it right there in the pew. Or they might do it at home. Or they might do it right after the service. And they might come down and say, Pastor, I would like to talk to you about my spiritual situation. And then we can share with them what Christ has done. Doesn't that take the pressure off of me? Absolutely. All I have to do is be faithful in sharing the truth of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Are you all with me so far? Okay? Is there anybody in here that knows Christ as Savior who to this point would say, I have been disqualified from sharing Christ? Stand up. Because I want to hear your disqualification. You say, well, I've been a bad sinner and people know my past. Great. Then they know what the Lord has saved you from. I will talk more about that in just a minute. Now we go back to the text itself. The next issue, we'll have to go through this fast, a prepared testimony. You know how you prepare a testimony? You tell the truth. (laughs) That's how you prepare a testimony. You just say, this is what the Lord did for me. So let's take a look. Are there elements in, in preparing and presenting a testimony? Yeah, there are. Look at, look at the way Paul begins to speak to this crowd. Now remember, they just beat on him, okay? Then you come to verse 1 of chapter 22. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. What's he doing? He's speaking to this bunch of bums that just tried to kill him respectfully. You speak to people respectfully. They may believe what you believe. They may not believe what you believe by the end of your conversation. But they are still individuals created in the image of God, though fallen in sin, who need a Savior, but they deserve respect. And Paul understood that right from the beginning. He didn't have a high horse attitude. Hey, I've got a message for you that you really need. I've heard people do stuff like that. Not those exact words, but but a haughtiness about the way they approach a person who needs a Savior. No, Paul did it respectfully. And then I want you to notice also he did it with a winsome attitude. He says, and when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, in other words, he addressed these people where they were. He did this in a way that you and I would look at and say, this is a very winsome way. This is a way to approach people. Uh, I, I may talk to a little child one way, but I'm going to talk to an adult another way. And I'm going to try to do that in a way that is very well accepted by the person to whom I'm speaking. If I try to talk down to an adult, I don't, I, I'd fully understand why they'd say, I don't want to hear from this person. So he begins. 
when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, now he's going to personalize this. And make sure you, oh, you don't have to write these down, do you? They're all there. And, and by the way, I did that for a reason. Because all this is what you need to know to actually tell others about Christ. You, you approach respectfully. You approach with a winsome attitude. You personalize the message. In other words, the message is brought to the arena in which the people to whom you are speaking live. This group is strongly Jewish. They are strongly committed to an anti-gospel message. And so Paul personalizes this approach by saying basically this, I was one of you guys. I, I went around, I was persecuting Christians. I really did a number on them. I used to throw them in jail. And when, when uh, Stephen was, was killed, I was there holding the coats. So he personalized it. I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. They all respected Gamaliel. Taught according to the strictness of our father's law and zealous towards God as you all are today. I persecuted this way. And he goes on and on to tell them more. Then we get down to verse 6. Now he takes it from personalized to personal. He says, but here's what Christ did for me. Paul's situation was unique. Because of the way the Lord drew him to himself. The way the Lord drew Paul to himself. Yours will be unique for you. And you need to know what it was that was involved in your coming to Christ. I think there are two things that are absolutely essential in this. Number one, it has to be truthful. You don't use somebody else's story, which some people do. How do you win a person to Christ by lying? I, I don't get that, but you tell the truth. I think I might have been saved when I was seven. Now, I would expand this, but I'm just going to tell you the way it happened. I, I think I probably was saved, but I honestly could not remember really trusting Christ as my Savior. So when I was 16, I realized, my goodness, I've got to make a choice. My buddies are all going this way, but God's Word says to go this way. Now, which one's it going to be? And I can remember rolling out of my bed with tears running down my cheeks, recognizing that I was a terrible sinner and I needed a Savior, and if I had not trusted Christ before, and even if I did, I want to make sure, Lord, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I believe not only was He buried, but He rose again from the dead, and I am accepting Him as my Savior. That's the truth. Yours is going to be unique. Do not lie. And don't, the second, don't feel like it's got to be dramatic. Well, I rode with the Hell's Angels for seven years. And uh, then one day, guys ahead of me got into a wreck. And when they piled up, they were screaming out as they were dying. And I thought to myself, man, I need to do something about this. So I went to this bar and I got drunk. And then all I did, I found my way down to this mission. And, and I went into, no, I didn't do any of those things. None of that. Sometimes Paul 
gives his testimony, which was so dramatic. And some, you, you get the idea yours has to be dramatic. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. You tell the truth. Then, you keep it Christ-centered. You focus on the identity of Jesus Christ. If you're talking to Jews, you show how he was the promised Messiah. A Jewish individual will understand that. If you're speaking to Gentiles, you show how he is the God of all creation. By him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that was made. He's the one who put the stars in space. He's the one who created us. And you make much of his identity and of his work. He died on the cross in my place to save me from my sins. And when he died, he took all the punishment that I deserve when he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father forsook the Son because my sin was on the Son. And so was yours. And then you focus on the purpose. You say, well, what do you mean by the purpose? You're not asking Jesus into your heart. You're not asking Jesus into your life. Just heard that testimony a day or two ago. You are asking Jesus to be your Savior because you are a sinner and your sin needs to be forgiven. And any benefit that comes from Christ coming into me is a benefit that He gives to me as He chooses. But there are some people, when they trust Jesus Christ as Savior, they get the idea that now everything's going to be okay. But for some, when they accept Jesus Christ as Savior, it means they're going to be forsaken from their families and it means the government may come after them and kill them. I'm not asking Jesus into my heart. I'm not asking Him to be part of my life so my life can be better. I need a Savior. I need someone to forgive my sins and to save my soul. And I need Him as my Lord. There's the purpose. The Savior and the Lord. And then, no question about it, it was clear. Christ is the only way. No religion. No act that you can perform. Only Christ. He's the way. This final point, I'm just going to mention this. You also need a spirit of courage. Well, what, what could happen? Your listener might ask for more information. And that's where a lot of people get nervous. Don't be nervous. Just say this. If you don't know the answer, say, you know what? I'll get that answer for you. Give me a call. Maybe I can help you out. I'll get the answer for you. And I'll come back. How about if we meet again next week? I'll, I'll talk to you and I'll, I'll have an answer for you next week. If I don't know the answer, we'll call Pastor Steve. If Pastor Steve doesn't know the answer, we'll call Luke. Now, Luke, we can't call Luke because he's got days where he doesn't do anything. So, hey, I've seen him at work. What was so special about yesterday? Oh, oh, uh, see, that that's part of the sin for which the Lord died. <laughs> All right. Um, they might want more. Guess what could happen? 
they might accept Christ. Did you ever think of that? At the time you least expect it, a person says, Yes, I need the Savior. I will trust in Christ as my Savior. And you step back and say, But I really messed up. Well, you don't do the saving anyway. You present the truth. Salvation is of the Lord. Good thing. They might remain indifferent. And, and most people that I've spoken to, they'd say, oh yeah, I, you know, I believe that. But you know that they only believe it here. It's not an issue of really trusting in Christ as Savior. It's a matter of saying, oh yeah, I, I believe Jesus died and he rose again from the dead. Well, the, de- the, the demons believe. And they're not saved. They're not rescued. So the person might remain indifferent. Or the person might turn on you. And I've had that happen. Slam a door in your face. Start cussing you out. Start accusing you of being goody two-shoes. Oh, you Christians, you think you're better than everybody else. No, the truth is we think we're worse than everybody else and we need a Savior. You think you're good enough to make it on your own. You never say that. Ninety-five percent of Christians never lead anyone else to the Savior. People that are saved are led to Christ by five percent. How about if we change that as a church? Let's stand. Do not answer out loud. Are you willing to determine in your heart right now that by the grace of God, as he gives you opportunity, you will take the opportunity he brings your way to share Christ with that individual or that group where that opportunity exists? You answer that in your heart. I hope the answer to that is yes. Goodbye. Go get them.